The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone, so let's come to the um, questions again and uh, see what happens for tonight. So <coughs> here we still get, let's get started. Uh, okay. Um, Okay, dear Ajahn Brahmali, your explanation of the Sutta today really struck me as uh, what's the point of the striving, trying hard to improve life, etc. Assuming that everyone sitting here tonight, including myself, doesn't want to become a monastic, uh, what's your thought about this dilemma with metta? <laughs> um, the point of the striving is to take you forward on the spiritual path, yeah? And uh, this is one of those uh, critical things to distinguish that life doesn't have to be empty or pointless. It is how you use it that really matters. Uh, if you use it in the right way, it's always going to be purposeful and meaningful to you. Uh, but to make it meaningful, what you have to do is you have to move away from making results the most important thing. Uh, yeah, We tend to always focus on results. We want outcomes. We want to meet the kind of the expectations of the company we're working for. We want our children to get to get good grades at school. Uh, whatever it is, we want outcomes to happen in life. We want to, you know, have uh, certain things or whatever it is. But outcomes are always unreliable, uh, always uncertain. Uh, you cannot guarantee that you will have any outcome, yeah? If you focus too much on that, you're always going to end up being very disappointed, uh, yeah? And life is not going to go where you want it to go. Uh, and as you say with all of these suttas today, they're really pointing in the same direction, that outcomes uh, in samsara, there is no outcome in, in samsara. There is tends to be, in the long run, disappointments, not really getting what you want. Uh. So instead of focusing on outcomes, we focus instead on the process. Uh. This is really the critical issue. Uh. And if you focus on the process, you will never be disappointed. Uh. Why is that? Because the process, what that means is that you focus on how you do things. Uh, you do things with kindness, uh, you do things with care, with a sense of compassion, all of these kind of things. Uh, and if you put that in into every aspect of your life, uh, your family life, uh, your friends, uh, your work, uh, your spiritual life, whatever it is, if you put those things in there, it will always be meaningful because everything becomes part of the spiritual path. And that is really the critical thing that you do. And then things become meaningful, yeah? They can become meaningful because of the uh, spiritual input uh, into whatever you do. Huh? And then if you get good outcomes, yeah, then it's fine to get good outcomes. Nothing wrong with having good outcomes, of course. Uh, but uh, uh, so if you get good outcomes, then you have like a double benefit. The outcome is good and the process is good as well. Uh, if you don't get a good outcome, if the outcome never happens, uh, then still you have the good process on the way. You still feel that you're going somewhere on the spiritual path. Uh, so you cannot really lose if you make the process the most important thing here. Uh, you're not going to be able to do this 100%. Yeah, We're always going to be have some attachments, a little bit of attachment to the idea of the outcomes. Uh, but you can at least lean more in that direction. Uh, and as you do that, you are kind of looking at things in, an, in a new way, doing things in a different way from what you did before. Uh. So you don't have to become a monastic. Yeah. <laughs>
good news, right? <laughs> and for many of you, it's impossible. Many of you, you have uh, commitments, you have things that you have to do in the world. You cannot really become monastics. You can't leave your children and kind of put them into some kind of orphanage. That wouldn't be very nice. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's, that's kind of wrong, also wrong. So you make the best of your situation. Uh, it's not, you know, the, the, the world isn't, isn't made up like that. Everyone isn't really supposed to become a monastic. Uh, so you make the best of what you have, and that's perfectly okay. Uh, and that's how you practice. Uh, and uh, then you will move in that direction, maybe down the track. Yeah, you may become a monastic, uh, it, whatever, it doesn't really matter. But uh, that is kind of the, uh, what you, how you make, make meaning out of life. Uh. Yeah. Anyway, let's that, that's enough for that one. There's many many questions here. Okay. Dear Ajahn, how can we differentiate willpower and wisdom power, yet having emotions and compassion uh, with an even mind? Uh, how can you differentiate willpower and wisdom power, yet having emotions and compassion uh, with an even mind? Uh, um well the difference between willpower and wisdom power is is really uh, you know when you have a problem in your life uh, yeah let's say you're getting angry with somebody and you you think okay how can i avoid that anger and upset uh, and then you there's two ways you can do that and the traditional way is to use kind of you know willpower turn your mind away try to control your mind this is what people this is kind of how people almost automatically deal with emotions they don't want to see they won't have anything to do with uh, you kind of push them to one side but uh, it is not very useful uh, it is not very useful because uh, it doesn't really get rid of that emotion in a very deep way uh. so instead of what you do is you think in a different way you ask yourself well why is it that i get angry and usually the reason why you get angry is because uh, uh, you see the faults in that person. Uh, you see something negative. Uh, yeah. So you need to think about that person in a different way. That is wisdom power. Uh, and instead of seeing the faults, instead of seeing yourself as a victim of that person's presence, uh, what you do instead is you focus on maybe on their suffering. Yeah. You understand that someone who is kind of uh, behaving in a bad way. Well, they have a they have a problem and. Probably their problem is far greater than yours, uh, which is just being in the presence for a short while. Uh, and then you actually turn things around. Instead of focusing on yourself, uh, you look at the other person and you understand their problem. And then compassion is possible. Uh, yeah, and this is very, very, very powerful. It's like, you know, if, if you make this work, you can get emotions to disappear, bang, like that. Uh, and the whole, the anger, the upset, the ill will is just completely gone. Uh, and it just can't arise anymore. It can't arise because you are giving rise to the opposite quality, the quality which actually counteracts that anger in a very deep way. Uh, very powerful. Or alternatively, what I also recommend you to do is to use, uh, remember the good qualities of the person. Yeah, And uh, so often we focus on uh, minor things that may upset us. Uh, and we forget that the bigger picture actually is quite good. Yeah, the big picture, lots of good things there to be focused on. Uh, and you bring your mind back to those good qualities. Uh, and then again, you overcome. This is like using metta. The difference here between metta and karuna, uh, friendliness or, or loving kindness and compassion on the other hand, these two qualities. Uh, this is the difference between willpower and wisdom power. Uh, yeah, And this is uh, wisdom power is far more powerful and uh, far less stressful. Uh, the only drawback with wisdom power is that you have to reflect on these things for a while before they really start to work. Yeah. 
yeah you have to use them for a while uh, but they are very powerful methods uh, uh, having emotions and compassion with an even mind uh, um, yeah so I, I you know if you have compassion uh, then that is is meta it, you know the mind is fairly even if you have those qualities uh, anyway those those qualities of meta and compassion don't really disturb the even mind uh, when we talk about an even mind really we mean the mind that is not uh, attracted or repelled by uh, in, by things in the sensual world that's really what we refer to we refer to the uh, the sensual pleasures, yeah, the aversion and the attraction in that realm. Uh, so compassion and metta don't really counteract the even mind. Uh, you not you don't want to go for uh, the highest kind of a, a Brahma Vihara straight away. When I say even mind, I don't mean the upeka of the Brahma Viharas. Uh, I just mean the even mind, which doesn't have attraction and aversion in the sensual realm. Uh, that is the main thing. If you can avoid that, uh, that is really what we mean by the initial even mind. Uh, yeah, and then upeka is way down the track. That's kind of really, that's kind of the, uh, you know, you're almost an arahant if you can have upeka all the time. So that's uh, that's asking a lot. Uh. So just develop those positive emotions, uh, and as you develop those positive emotions, then that is really within the uh, that is within the range of of uh, what an even mind actually means. Uh. Number two, how can we? Oh, okay. Number two, how can we catch us asserting willpower before getting caught in it? Uh, um, it is just a gradual training. Uh, yeah, you gradually you uh, you, um, you you see what's happening. Uh, uh, there's again, there's two things. One is what you use in your daily life to overcome unwholesome thoughts, and I would really recommend you to try to do this in daily life, overcoming you know. Negative states, in particular the ill will, by far the most important one to overcome. Do that in daily life and see if you can use the wisdom power then. Uh, that is really the best way. And then when it comes to meditation practice, it's a gradual thing. Yeah, it is hard to overcome willpower in meditation. But remember the idea of just resting here. Uh, the idea of coming back home after a long day's work, you sit down in your armchair, yeah. What do you do if you're really exhausted and you sit down in your armchair? Well, the last thing you do is to try to control your mind, right? Uh, you don't sit there kind of forcing your mind on the breath or whatever. It's the last thing you want to do if you're really exhausted. Uh, you just relax. Uh, you just allow things to be. You allow your mind to flow. And the weird thing is that when you allow your mind to flow like that, uh, actually the tiredness dissipates a little bit, right? That's why you do it. Uh, and you can see from that straight away that a lot of the tiredness actually comes from the controlling, uh, the hard work, all of the uh, effort, all the willpower you put into their life. That's where a lot of the tiredness comes from. Uh, and by just relaxing, uh, just by sitting back and allowing things to be, allowing the mind to go wherever it wants, actually the energy comes back. Uh, the tiredness starts to dissipate. Uh, clarity comes back again. Uh, that gives you a good hint of what you have to do in meditation. Of course, we don't want to wait till we are utterly exhausted before we do that. Uh, yeah, this is what happens in ordinary life. But you try to do something similar in meditation, but without the exhaustion. Uh, you allow things to go. Uh, yeah, and if you do that, then uh, uh, gradually, actually, energy and things come back into the mind because you're just observing, uh, just being with. Uh, you're not actually doing anything at all. Uh. So you have to have some kind of um, you know idea, or you can say it is like when you go to bed at night and you just relax, you're just going to sleep. Yeah, what do you do when you go to sleep? Nothing. Yeah, 
So you just allow things to be. That's how you fall asleep. If you try to fall asleep, you never fall asleep. Uh, this is one of those desperate things because sometimes you can't fall asleep and then you try. Uh, and you kind of, as you, the more you try, the less you can fall asleep sometimes. Uh, why? Because you're using willpower and the mind to do uh, what cannot be done by willpower. It can only be done by letting go. Uh, so try to remember what it means. So th this is then using willpower and wisdom power outside of meditation and then within meditation. Yeah, two different, slightly different scenarios. Uh. Thank you. Have a good evening. Thank you very much. May you two have a good evening here. Yeah. And uh, good. Let's go on to the next one. Uh, okay. Uh, dear Ajahn, thank you for your profound talk today. When you talked about tears and blood shed, everyone being your mother at one time, is that just uh, a reflection, a simile, or an absolute truth? <laughs> oh, that, so what are you are you hoping is just a simile and not the absolute truth? Is that is that kind of the? Uh, <coughs> well, sometimes the um, it it is both. Yeah, this is kind of the point. It is both a truth from the Buddhist point of view and also a reflection. Uh, so these things are not really opposed to each other. It's not really a simile. It is actually meant, I think, quite literally in these, these cases. Uh, if you read that sutta, there's nothing there which is to indicate it's a simile. Uh, everything is really there to indicate that this is how samsara works. Uh, and it is quite, it is very stark. Yeah, it is kind of um, um, difficult. And this is why often you hear that Buddhism is pessimistic. But it's a, it's a wrong way of thinking about things. It's not pessimistic. The idea with Buddhism is to be realistic. Yeah? And then when you are realistic, when you have the right attitude, when you see the world in the way that the Buddha sees the world, uh, you align your view with that, uh, then again, you can make good decisions. Uh, you can decide what is worthwhile doing and what is not. Uh. So the point is you have to be realistic first of all, otherwise you can't make good decisions. Uh. And this is what, how the Buddha says this is how he says that the world is. Uh, yeah, when you have that bird's eye perspective, when you stand back and you look at all of this, uh, and uh, uh, you know, it, if you don't, if you feel that it is too much, just leave it to one side. Uh, don't worry about it. It is not important. You can still enjoy the Buddhist path. Don't reject it outright. That's the only thing I would recommend you not to do, because then you might go contrary to the Buddha. But if you feel you can't really have confidence or faith in it, it's fine. You don't have to have confidence and faith in this uh, if you find it is too much. Uh, leave it to one side and then carry on with whatever else you're doing uh, and see maybe further down the line it actually may make sense after all. Uh, one of the things that the Buddha says in the uh, Sutta, this is found in the Kalama Sutta, which I'm sure you have heard about. Uh, and in the Kalama Sutta, the Buddha says that doubting uh, is okay here. Uh, he goes to the Kalamas and the Kalamas say, oh, we have all these various kind of ascetics come into our village. yeah." And one gives teaching A, another gives teaching negative A. Yeah? In other words, exact opposites. yeah. So, so who, is, who is telling the truth and who is not telling the truth? They ask the Buddha. And the Buddha says, yeah, it's, you know, you, it's good for you to have doubt because these are doubtful matters. Uh, yeah. So not only is the Buddha saying that uh, doubt is okay, he's saying you should have doubt if something is doubtful. Uh, so doubting is okay in Buddhism. Uh, one of those, uh, again, there's so many things in Buddhism that are so different from what we normally are used to from other religions or other spheres of life. Uh, and this is the kind of what makes Buddhism so special in, this, in its attitude to, to the world and to life. It's actually very different from what we're used to. Uh, doubting is acceptable, yeah? 
Not only is it acceptable, you should doubt if something is doubtful. Eh? Otherwise, you're just being silly. Don't be silly. That's what the Buddha says, don't be silly. It's kind of it's good advice, isn't it? Don't be silly here. Yeah. So this is where it kind of uh, comes from. So uh, take it uh, gradually and then see what happens. And then, uh, um, yes. Okay. Dear Ajahn, if someone has been diagnosed with illness, e.g. cancer, but decided not to proceed with any medical treatment, uh, is this breaking the first preset or killing involving one's own body? What about euthanasia? Thank you. <laughs> so is that a uh, killing? Well, remember that uh, the precepts of killing. Yeah, yeah. Remember, it is about what it is about. It's about uh, uh, depriving something of what somebody wants to have. Yeah. So somebody wants to be alive, and then if you take away their life when they want to live, then it is unwholesome because you are uh, basically depriving someone for something something they want. Yeah. That is the problem. Uh, so if you don't want to live, you're not really depriving anyone from anything here. Yeah? yeah, then it's it's it's, it's a very different situation. Huh? So if you want to die and you have cancer and you think, oh, there's no need to kind of have any treatment on this, and I'll just go with the flow or whatever. If you're doing that, this making that decision in a wise way, uh, it is not it is not bad karma. It is not. Uh, I would say it's not breaking the first precept. Uh, and this is the beautiful thing about Buddhist morality. Buddhist morality is all based on motivation. It's a motivation morality or intention morality. Uh, if your motivation is good, uh, motivation in Pali are the haters, the roots of actions. Uh, so if your motivation is coming from, if you're coming from compassion, you're coming from kindness, you're coming from uh, a degree of wisdom uh, yeah, and care, uh, then uh, you can never really go very wrong. Uh. And this is true also for euthanasia. Yeah, so if uh, uh, let's say you have something, you know, you have in these days recently that uh, they have passed a bill in Western Australia, voluntary assisted dying, VAD. Uh, yeah, so you have a, a voluntary assisted dying, someone helps you. It's not really the same as euthanasia. Euthanasia, in its most uh, kind of um, uh, straightforward sense, means that you kill someone else. And that is always a bit dicey because you have to know that they really want to do that. Uh, but voluntary assisted dying uh, is leaning in that direction. You're helping someone else to die. Is that bad? Well, it depends on the circumstances. Uh, it depends on whether the person who is dying has a clear mind state, uh, that they know what they're doing. Uh, it depends on whether the person who is assisting them is also coming from good and wholesome qualities. Uh, but if everyone is coming from good and wholesome qualities, uh, you're taking all the precautions that are required, uh, then why should society or anyone else force them to be alive. Is that compassion, to force someone to be alive if they don't want to be alive? That doesn't sound right either. Yeah. So really, in the end, it has to come down to the decision of the individual. And then you tell them, Yeah. if, you, if they ask a Buddhist monk or a Buddhist, what is the right approach? Well, the answer is, the right approach is to look at your motivation when you make any kind of decision. Decisions in Buddhism are always motivation-based, whether they're right or wrong. Yeah. And uh, when you read the suttas carefully, you will see that. The problem with the five precepts, as I mentioned before, they are just approximations to morality. Yeah. Yeah, they give you a very good guide, but they're not the final say. The final say is motivation and intention. Yeah. That's what really matters. Yeah. So from my point of view, euthanasia, yeah, it depends. It depends on the circumstances. Yeah. There's no not yes or no. It depends on how you do it. Yeah. Okay, 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 okay. 
Uh, dear Adzan, how to de-identify de with the five aggregates in real life? Uh, in real life, yeah. Um, that's the question. <laughs> what is everything is real life? Yeah, it's not kind of it's not one life is less real than the other one. You mean like not being a monk? Is that what you mean? Or uh, <laughs> monastic life is also real, right? It may we may look a bit out of this world, but we're still real. <laughs> so the. Um, the question really is how to de-identify with the five agas, and again, this is part of the meditation process. Yeah, when I mentioned, uh, when was that this morning or yesterday, whenever it was, uh, yesterday, I was talking about the process of meditation, how it works. Yeah, and that process is actually a de-identification process with the five aggregates. Every time you go deeper in meditation is because you are letting go of the five aggregates a little bit. That's the only way to go deeper in meditation. So every time you let go, yeah, that's why you go deeper. Yeah. And as you let go, you actually are de-identifying. Yeah. yeah, this is kind of what's happening there. Yeah. And then when you think back on the process and you think of all the things that you have let go of, that you have abandoned in that process, uh, you start to realize those things must be non-self. Otherwise, you couldn't let go of them. Yeah. So you start to understand the idea of non-self. And that understanding of non-self, that is the de-identification that you go through. And the more things cease and the more they come to an end, the more powerful that insight into non-self, anatta, will be, anatman will be. Yeah, more powerful it will be because you see that now it is let go of, it is out of your control, you can no longer hold on to these things. And because of that, it must be non-self. It becomes very clear after a while, the deeper you go. Huh? And you may already start to understand this, yeah? why the body is non-self, for example. You may get a feeling for that of after a while. Huh? So you gradually de-identify. It's a gradual process huh? until one day the big bang. Actually, not the big bang. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Something like the big bang. It's your personal big bang yeah, when these things happen there. Huh? There's the personal big bang, and there's the kind of universal big bang. These are slightly different things. Yeah. So uh, don't quote me on that one, by the way. Uh, get into so that is um, that is roughly how it happens. Yeah. So uh, don't make it into an intellectual exercise. Uh, sometimes people try to contemplate the five aggregates or the five khandas as an intellectual exercise, uh, and really it is not. It is not really doable. You really have to see things through the meditation. That's really the only way that it actually really works. Uh, otherwise, it just becomes a, it becomes a forever thinking about these things. It doesn't really grab you in a kind of deep sense, and that that is always going to be problematic. Yeah. Okay, next one. Ajahn, any living example of arahant and stream entries? You may not be allowed to say and have a smiley face. <laughs> have you yourself seen ghosts okay have i seen ghosts okay <laughs> the first one are there any living examples of arahants and stream entries and uh, i may not be allowed to say well um what i can say is that uh, it is there's not much point in me saying anything because i say something and then some people will agree and some will disagree and some will have doubts and some will you know, have blind faith and all of these kind of things. The important thing on the Buddhist path is to trust your own judgment about these things. Uh, yeah, in the end, you have to trust your own judgment anyway. So you might as well do that straight away. 
And uh, the way to do that when it comes to looking out for stream mentors and arahants is to look out for some of those qualities that such people have. Yeah, What are the qualities of an arahant? Well, they are going to be very selfless. What does that mean in practice? It means they're very generous. They're always giving of themselves. Yeah, they never really. They don't have a, a large fleet of Rolls Royces. Yeah, they are like some of these uh, scallywag, scallywag spiritual people have sometimes. And uh, <laughs> it's true. Uh, that some. Wh what is that famous spiritual teacher who said that I'm, I'm so detached. I'm not even attached to detachment. Uh, you know that saying? Yeah. And he, and he had a large fleet of Rolls Royces, by the way. So that's how that's how you are not even attached to detachment. Uh, so um, <laughs> so the uh, so you you look at them carefully, yeah, and you you notice whether they really have those spiritual qualities. Uh, they don't have any ill will, yeah. If you see a lot of kindness, you see a lot of care, you see a lot of compassion, yeah, then. Chances are they are on the right track. If you see someone who has ill will, I've seen this happen sometimes. Sometimes people have a very high reputation, yeah, but then they do something strange. And straight away people start to justify the strange behavior. Yeah, oh yeah, no, it's not really ill will. Yeah, it's just uh, their personality or whatever. Yeah, and I think you're just deluding yourself because uh, you have, if someone really acts in a way that looks like anger, this you should have doubt. Yeah, the Buddha said there's good grounds for having doubt. You should have doubt. Uh, don't go with what everyone else says uh, because the vast majority of people in this world, they are deluded. Uh, yeah, this is kind of the problem. Majority, that's kind of the meaning of majority that you are deluded. Uh, yeah, this is why majority is no good grounds for going with anything uh, because it's always going to be problematic. So trust your own judgment. Uh, see what the Buddha says, uh, and then find out what is the right track. Uh, and then you will be heading in the right direction. Uh. So look for those co good qualities. Yeah, the, the clarity of the mind as well is a very good example of someone like that. Uh. So I recently went to Thailand. And when I was in Thailand, I, as I mentioned before, I visited this monk called uh, Ajahn Ganha, Lumpur Ganha in Thailand. Uh. And he is this very, very beautiful monk, yeah, with very powerful presence and very strong kind of shining eyes. There's so much kindness and so much energy in him. Uh, he looks like he never gets tired. He gets up, he, he meditates in the morning, and then he kind of carries on throughout the day with the power of that meditation from the morning, uh, yeah, all day long. Uh, and it never seems to really kind of slacken off in his energy. Uh. So is, is he an arahant? Maybe, I don't know, possibly, yeah, he could be an arahant. So if you want to visit someone who might be an arahant, maybe go and visit him and see what you think, yeah? yeah? And give, a, give us a report afterwards of what you think, yeah? <laughs> but I had, a, I had I, you know, it's kind of, when you are in the presence of somebody like that, it's almost a bit, you feel almost a bit, whoa, it's almost like too much. Uh, and especially if you are a monk, if you come from Ajahn Brahm's monastery, he's very close to Ajahn Brahm because he stayed with us for many months back in the late 1980s. Uh, so he knows Ajahn Brahm well, so when I come there, you know, he really looks after you, yeah, especially as a monk. He really kind of, I spent the whole day with him basically when I was there. And uh, and sometimes, you know, he puts you in a chair, sit, sits you there next to him, and then he kind of pats you on the knee and on the head and all this kind of stuff. And he feeds you cheese in the mouth, yeah, and, and, and all this, this is kind of the way he works. Uh, it's all very sweet and very nice. Uh, and then one day, uh, one, one, or that particular day, I was sitting there and I was uh, 
uh, thinking, well, what, you know, everyone was sitting around, all the lay people were there, and I was there, some of the bikunis were there, we were all there together. Actually, I was traveling separately, but uh, many other people from Perth happened to be there at the same time, and lots of other people as well from everywhere around the world, from Korea and Singapore, and just a large number of people. Uh, he kind of attracts people like a magnet, yeah? This is the magnetism of meta, draws people in, uh, and he kind of, uh, I, you know, so be careful with too much meta, yeah? This is what happens. Uh. <laughs> So uh, I was sitting there, I was thinking, well, what should I ask him? Yeah? And one of the nice things about not being part of Thai culture uh, is that you can ask questions that nobody else can ask. Yeah? Yeah, if you are Thai, you have to follow the kind of Thai way of doing things. You cannot be rude. Yeah? This is rude according to Thai culture. You always have to kind of fit into the hierarchy. You have to be, you know, as a Ganha is this kind of person, you have to say a certain thing. But as a, when you kind of come as a, as a Westerner, you can say anything, yeah, and they will always forgive you and let it go because they understand you haven't got a clue about Thai culture. Yeah? So I thought I'm going to use this to my to the maximum, yeah. This kind of <laughs> get get out of jail for free card kind of you have as a, as someone outside of Thai culture. Yeah? So I I always I thought it's nice to kind of be a bit more uh, direct about things. I thought. So I thought, this question I'm going to ask, I thought, I, this, at this point I was already a bit familiar with Ajahn Ganna, and I said, Lumpur, you're kind of, you're getting old now, yeah, you're fat, yeah. <laughs> you're not as beautiful as you used to be, you kind of, you know, things are kind of falling apart a little bit. Uh, and uh, yet, despite you, despite you being a bit ugly and old and fat, uh, despite that, still, in one sense, you are the most beautiful person here, uh, yeah, because it has this very powerful presence. Uh, beauty you know, once you, you see somebody the first time, you may think they're ugly, but after a while, when you get to know them, their personality, that initial impression fades away, and you see something much deeper there. And what you see is this underlying beauty, the beauty of character. And that is far more important than kind of the superficial you know, ugliness or whatever it might be. So then I thought about this for a while, yeah, and I thought, well, how can I say this without being too rude, yeah? Even as a Westerner, you don't want to be too rude. You might kind of give the West a bad name if you, if you do that. So, <laughs> so I, so then, as I was thinking this, uh, yeah, Ajangana turns to this old lady, there's an old lady sitting on the opposite side of Ajangana, and then he says to this old lady, he says, "Well, you know, you are, you know, you are quite old and ugly, yeah." <laughs> <laughs> Something to, something to that effect, uh, but you know, you can still be beautiful. And I, oh, at that point I thought, whoa! <laughs> and it was kind of astonishing, because at that, you know, that, that really felt like he must have read my mind and then asked exactly the same question of this old lady sitting opposite. Uh, yeah. And the way he said it was like, he said it in a way, this is the thing about being someone like that. You can say things that other people would find rude, yeah? But for, because it comes from him, it doesn't seem rude. It seems just natural, yeah? The way he says it kind of is still perfectly acceptable. Yeah? And then afterwards, I, you know, then I asked Ajahn Ganna because I, f I was a bit shocked. I felt, you know, are you, are you reading my mind or are you just kind of talking in general? I asked him, uh, and then he said, never mind, never mind. <laughs> 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 Very interesting, yeah? And so I, I don't know. I don't know whether he actually, you know, it seemed almost too good to be true that he was to ask pretty much exactly the same question. Uh, but it was a very powerful thing. But the strange thing about it, uh, when someone like that reads your mind, and I'm not, I don't really want to have my mind read, to be honest, but uh, 
if someone that does it, you don't feel, it doesn't feel dangerous. Yeah, it doesn't feel as if you are, you know, whatever you think, you know he's going to forgive you. You know he's going to kind of have loving kindness for you regardless. So you feel kind of, you know, it doesn't feel dangerous at all. So you can still relax even though he's reading your mind. Yeah, Even if you think like, I'm going to kill you, Ajahn Ganha, still he will have metta towards you. That's kind of the, the thing about someone like Ajahn Ganha. So anyway, I would I would really, if I was going to recommend anyone, he would be kind of one among the top people on the list, yeah? So sometimes it can be nice to visit uh, monks like that because they are very special uh, and get a feeling for what they, what they are like. Yeah. There are other people that I respect very highly. You know, I respect someone like Ajahn Brahm very, very highly. Uh, but um, I'm, you know, exactly, I'm not going to say anything about exactly where I think he is on the path because I think that is... Uh, yeah, is is silly, uh, and you can just observe for yourself. Uh, but Ajahn Brahm is a pretty remarkable person. I've lived with him for 25 years, uh, and he has some very powerful spiritual qualities. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, I, there are some nice stories about that, but I'm not going to tell that now because it's uh, maybe later on. We'll see how things go, uh, but not now. Uh. Have I seen ghosts myself? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to say anything about that now. Maybe we'll see what happens later on. <laughs> okay, next one. Venerable Ajahn Brahmali, could you please explain what insight outcome I would expect from walking meditation as being uh, conscious of the breath from Anapanasati? Do we expect the deepening of sati in different ways? Um... With all, all kinds of meditation, whether it's walking meditation or sitting meditation, you have to have some clarity about why you are doing it, uh, yeah, what the purpose is uh, uh, as you do it. And uh, I would say that when you do walking meditation, I would not normally recommend anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing, when you walk, because it is too refined, really, for walking meditation. And I would recommend you to do something else. I very often when you meditate, yeah, you're watching the breath, it's almost as the meditation goes through a kind of process, you get pe more and more peaceful, and then you kind of come to a plateau, and then it kind of peters out, and it kind of stops. Uh, and when it kind of stops like that, it's a good time to end, yeah, instead of carrying on and trying more. Uh, try to follow the rhythm, the natural rhythm of meditation, without kind of artificially carrying on for too long. Uh, it depends. Not, not all people have that perception. It depends on how good your meditation is and all of these kind of things. But sometimes you have a natural feel. You come out and then it comes to a natural end. Then do something else. And then when you do something else, don't do more breath meditation. Wait a while before coming back to the breath again. And then that is a good time to do walking meditation. Then you can contemplate something. You can do metta while you do walking meditation. Yeah, Or you can just enjoy walking back and forth. Yeah, if you had a good sit beforehand, it might be just nice just to walk back and forth at a very normal pace, uh, just enjoying the fresh air, just enjoying the movement of the body a little bit. Uh, yeah, that can be very pleasant. Uh, or do contemplation. Yeah, reflect on death, reflect on metta, reflect on some of the suttas of the Buddha, what they might actually mean to you. Uh, uh, all of these things are valid ways of contemplating the Dhamma. And it will uh, be helpful if you do it in the right way. Uh, 
or just walk back and forth. The idea of just walking back and forth, I, uh, many, a few years ago, we have a, a quite a well-known Bur Burmese monk coming to Jana Grove and, and giving a meditation retreat, Utejaniya, is quite well known, and he came there and we discussed a little bit about walking meditation. He said that when he, he teaches walking meditation, he just tells people, oh, just walk back and forth, yeah, don't worry too much, uh, and just kind of observe your mind a little bit uh, and see what happens. Uh, that's good enough, yeah? And by observing your mind a little bit, you get to know yourself, you get to know your defilements perhaps, uh, and then you can use that information later on to know what you need to do, yeah, in, in where your hindrances are, where your problems are, uh, and you can deal with those things later on. Uh. So don't, I wouldn't recommend always watching the breath. Uh, yeah, I don't think that is a good strategy. Know the right time. Uh, know when it feels right to come back to the breath again. Uh. Uh, otherwise, it often just gets too much. Samatha, kind of samatha, 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 all the time is not really useful. Do a bit of reflection and contemplation as well, uh, and uh, yeah, and see how that see where that gets you. Uh, remember some of the reflections uh, I was thinking about talking about before about the the Buddha talking about everything dear and agreeable to me must become otherwise must become separated from me. Uh, yeah. This is also a very useful reflection. Uh, think about what that means in terms of the world. Well, what it means, it means things like uh, climate change, for example. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know about you, but to me it looks like the world is a bit out of control when it comes to climate change. Uh, that's my perspective on it. Uh, it seems pretty bad. Uh, I, I, I don't know, but it must have been pretty bad here in Melbourne a few months ago when the fires were gone. Is that right? Yeah, I have no idea. We don't have that in Perth. I'm not sure, but it looked very bad. And... Uh, so what does that mean in terms of uh, how we think about the world? Well, what it means is that everything dear and agreeable to me must become otherwise. Yeah, This is the nature of things. Uh, climate change, you do what you can to help out. Uh, you don't, you know, you don't not care. That's also the wrong way. But uh, you understand that in the end, your power to affect these things is limited. Uh, and then you understand because it is limited, in the end, you don't know where the world is going to go. Uh, it's kind of scary in one way, but what it means is that you shift your focus. Uh, instead of focusing too much on saving the world and, and sorting out the planet, which is something you can never guarantee, you shift it instead to the qualities, how you do it, uh, the care you put into it, uh, and in the end, allowing yourself the, the, the way out, which is letting go of all of that, because in the end, you cannot be assured that this will work out. Uh, so you do your best. Uh, you do it with a good heart. Uh, you don't allow yourself to get angry. If you are concerned about the result and you want the result to be good, uh, if the result doesn't work out, you're going to get upset and angry very likely. Uh, but if you know that the result is uncertain and you can only do so much, that anger and ill will will not arise in the same way. Uh. So reflect on these things. Yeah, The world of politics seems to be kind of, uh, you know, is also out of control, obviously. You're never going to have the people in power that you think should be in power. Uh, not, not never, but, uh, you know, some of the time is you're not. Uh, and basically the world is out of control. It always has been, but right now is this moment in time when it feels more real. Yeah, you can really feel that things are sort of out of control. What does that do to you? Well, what it does, it shifts where your values. Uh, it shifts what you value in life, what is really important to you. Uh, so when we say that things are out of control, we don't just mean our immediate life, our family, our work or whatever. We mean everything in that realm. Yeah, It's a very, very broad realm. Whenever you feel that you get upset about something you see on TV or, or you read about on the internet or the newspapers, uh, well, there is your problem. 
there is something that is dear and agreeable to you and it's becoming otherwise and you don't like it. Uh, okay, that is where you have a chance to reflect. Uh, so these things are things you can think about even on your when you walk, yeah, to remind yourself, okay, why am I getting upset about this? Uh, how can I look at these things in a different way? Uh, and uh, gradually you kind of withdraw your interest in those things because you realize it is inherently unpredictable, uncertain. Uh. So be um, try to kind of use some of these uh, various tools yeah, and think about these things in a different way. Use a bit of death contemplation or whatever and uh, see if that can make you, give you a, uh, give you a sense of peace. I, just before we did the death contemplation, I started by saying that, uh, you know, feel what it feels like to be on your deathbed in the beginning. Uh, and this is really the initial thing, to feel your reaction to knowing that you die. Uh, how does that feel? And some people feel bad about it. They feel terrible. They don't feel ready at all. And that is a very good sign that something that you know something isn't right. Uh, then you have to ask yourself, why do I feel so bad? And sometimes it will be obvious. Uh, there will be obvious things, uh, things that you need to do in your life. Maybe you have somebody you need to talk to or whatever first uh, or whatever. Yeah, it's very obvious that there are things that you're not re ready to let go. Uh, or it might be too much attachments to something, yeah, whatever it is. Uh, so it's a very good uh, indicator of what you need to do to kind of be ready when you die. Uh. And all meditation, in a sense, is a little bit like dying. Uh. Yeah, when you meditate, you become peaceful. You're letting go of the world. It's a similar idea. And I often use this as an idea when I meditate, that now I'm just dying. Uh. Now is the time for me to die. Uh. I'm, I'm going to have to die one day anyway. Now I'm going to be ready. And once you get that into your head, you kind of, whoa, you become peaceful quite quickly because at that point, there's nothing more for you to do in this world. Yeah? So every time you sit down and meditate, you can use the idea, I'm dying, this is, this is dying for me. If I'm ready now, then I will be ready when it actually happens. If I'm not ready now, I may never be ready. Now I'm going to die to the world and you let it all go. So and it is very similar, yeah, the idea of meditation and death is very similar because it is a similar process that you ideally go through. If you can't let go when you die, it's going to be a much more difficult death for you. Huh? Anyway, okay. Dear Ajahn, in the dependent origination, which, where is the key factor to break, to get out of the cycle? Some teachers say, ignorance others say feeling others say craving thank you so you want me to be the judge yeah who is right who is wrong and all of that um uh, the answer the answer i i'm actually going to come back to this later on because dependent origination is part of the second and third noble truth but uh, some of you are leaving so i'll just give you a quick kind of answer to that one and uh, uh, in a sense it is a bit of both because uh, First of all, you need to reduce the craving to be able to calm the mind. Yeah? So the first thing is the link feeling goes to craving. Vedana pachaya tanha, from the condition of feeling we have craving. So the first thing to do is to learn to reduce that craving uh, for feelings. Yeah? This, is the this is what part, what sense restraint is all about. Uh, and as you reduce the craving, then samadhi and meditation becomes possible. When samadhi becomes possible, then you can have yatta bhuta nyanadasana, seeing things according to reality, which is what undermines the avidja at the beginning of the, of the sequence. 
So reduce the craving, then avidja is undermined. When avidja is finally overturned, then that avidja is what eliminates craving completely. Yeah. You cannot eliminate craving completely just by being mindful, yeah, just by sense restraint. Uh, so you do that first of all just to some point uh, to some extent, uh, then uh, you use the samadhi and the insight to eliminate avidja, then craving uh, disappears because once you understand that craving uh, doesn't get you anywhere, craving just dissipates and disappears by itself. Uh. So that is what I say. So now you have some teachers and then you have others and then you have others and then you have others again. The others, that's the fourth one, that's me. So next time you ask someone, you have another kind of a person <laughs> there. <yeah. laughs> and we can keep on uh, asking. Yeah. This is the problem. There's often there, you know, you often you have to kind of, uh, there comes a point when you s sort of have to be satisfied that you think you know the answer and just kind of carry on at that point. Uh, anyway, next one. Hi, what advice would you give to someone considering ordination, living the monastic life? Thank you. Uh, what advice I would give? I would uh, give the advice that um, try it out. Go and stay in a monastery. And I would suggest that you stay in a few different monasteries uh, because uh, uh, monasteries are often quite different. Yeah, It's surprising how the atmosphere can vary a lot from one monastery to the next one. And you may find that some monasteries are actually very suitable for you, whereas others are not. Uh, so try a few different places and feel out the atmosphere. Feel what uh, uh, you know, th how the teachings are, whether it fits with your ideas of the Dhamma and all of these kind of things. Uh, and that is a very good way of doing it. But stay in the monastery for a while, first of all. Uh, you may find out it is not for you at all. Uh, yeah, and that's okay. But if it doesn't, it isn't for you, then maybe you are better off staying as a layperson, uh, or you may find it's exactly what you're looking for. Uh. So uh, it's really, I think it's as simple as that, uh, yeah, Try, trying it out. Uh. But uh, I would really recommend monastic life. To me, it, I think it is very, very worthwhile. It is very extraordinarily, if you have a good monastery, it has to be a good monastery though, this is very important. Uh, if you go to a good monastery, it will be very supportive for the spiritual practice. Uh, that is what is so nice about it. Uh, yeah? You have a good teacher who inspires you, you have a good environment. You are very supported. Yeah, it's a great privilege to be a monastic. Lay people come and support you all the time. Yeah, you just sit there in your cutie and food just arrives in the monastery here. <laughs> it's like magic. Yeah, wow, all this food. And sometimes the food is just so beautiful. Yeah, it's just astonishing what people go to such length to provide monastics with such marvelous and wonderful food. It just... Sometimes it's actually, this is actually one of the pleasures of being a monk or a nun, is that, you know, you, you, you see the, how this thing works. You see all the generosity. You see so much kindness in the world as a monastic. Yeah. You don't see probably as much kindness in the world as a layperson. Huh? This is one of the great benefits of being a monastic. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Huh? And uh, so you are there and you are so well supported, especially when you have a teacher like Ajahn Brahm, you're really well supported. Yeah. This is one of the advice. Should choose a teacher who is really well liked because then you get, you know, you kind of, uh, you kind of get some of the benefits <laughs> of that support as well. No, I'm being silly. I, I, I don't, I don't really mean it that way. But you should be supported enough to, you know, to be able to live the monastic life. Uh, then you have very nice conditions. If it's a good monastery, you get a cootie by yourself, far away. Yeah, and all your only job really is to sit there and meditate, and nobody's going to ask more of you. Uh, 
Really, that's that's really it. Yeah, and occasionally you might be asked to give a teaching once you've been a monastic for a while, but it's not really, not absolutely necessary even to teach as long as you practice in the right way. You get this ideal circumstance, a tiny little hut of your own, really good support, beautiful kalyanamittas who think like you, a nice teacher who kind of supports you in the right way. You know, what? what's not to like? You know, it's just... Uh, <laughs> It's just really ideal if you incline to that kind of life. Uh, it is really, uh, really perfect for living the spiritual life. Uh, so I would really recommend you to at the very least try it out if you are inclining that direction. And then if it uh, works out, great. If it doesn't work out, so be it. Uh, okay, dear Ajahn, I have read that dependent origination as taught by the Buddha, encompasses three lifetimes. Could you kindly elaborate? Yes, it does uh, encompass three lifetimes. I think that is very obvious. I was just reading out the other day the definitions of jati, jara, and marana, birth, old age, and death. Uh, and it obviously means uh, literal birth, old age, and death. And because jati and jara and marana are found in dependent origination, then it must mean multiple lifetimes. Yeah, You go from bhava, to jati, or you go from upadana, bhava, jati, uh, because it crosses that barrier into birth, it must uh, include many multiple lifetimes. So the idea is just to show you that dependent origination, yeah, the cycle of samsara is a includes the idea of rebirth it is not just something that happens in the in the moment uh, this is really the problem yeah, the big problem of dukkha arises because of rebirth and that is kind of the point of dependent origination uh, and if you try to re-evaluate it in terms of mind moments or whatever uh, you lose a massive part of what the buddhist teachings is about uh, there are people who try to do that uh, there is some precedence for that in the Abhidhamma. If you read the uh, Vibhanga, one of the books of the Abhidhamma, it looks like they are reinterpreting it uh, a little bit in terms of uh, one lifetime. But uh, remember, the Abhidhamma, it specifically said there that this is the Abhidhamma Bhajaniya, the Abhidhamma method. There is the Suttanta Bhajaniya, which is the method according to the suttas. And that method is always three lifetimes. So if you want to follow the Buddha and not the Abhidhamma, which one do you prefer, Abhidhamma or Buddha? <laughs> Some people like Abhidhamma, but I, we don't know who wrote the Abhidhamma. Yeah? It may have been... We have no idea who it is, and because you don't know who it is, it's actually always a bit dangerous to go down that track. So stay with the Buddha. That's kind of the safest bet. Yeah? Some kind of anonymous author 2,300 years ago, it doesn't really cut the... Cut the mustard, as they say. You know, it's not going it, to. It's just too uncertain to know where these things come from. So go back to the word of the Buddha. Leave the Abhidhamma to one side. Uh, I'm not saying it is necessarily invalid. You, of course, you can, if you want to, you can take the twelve life formula and you can apply it in different ways. Yeah, you can use it in new ways. There's always a degree of creativity going on in, uh, you know, in Buddhism as well, and that is kind of okay. Yeah, but you have to be clear. This is not what the Buddha meant by dependent origination. This is a new idea, and it's just a matter, you know, a, a way of looking at it which is different, uh, which is okay. But that is not dependent origination. Uh. 
So it goes over three lifetimes. It doesn't mean that dependent origination is just about three lifetimes. Of course, it means that it is just about this ongoing sequence, yeah, moving on and on and on. It's about multiple lifetimes. Uh, that's really what it means. Uh. Okay. Just trying to be a bit organized. Okay, that's the last few questions right there. Okay, good. So I'm just going to go through these and then. Um, oh, that's a really nice one. Thank you. It says. Uh, so is that meant for me or is it just kind of at the bottom of the? This is all it says. Thank you. So <laughs> maybe that's meant for everyone. Thank you, everyone. Uh, well done. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Dear Ajahn. Uh, would you please explain if doing hypnosis uh, of past life regression could help us to understand rebirth or should we meditate to experience rebirth? Uh, if there is no beginning, how about Darwin's theory about human evolution from the monkeys? <laughs> okay, so, uh, okay. Is doing hypnosis of past life, doing past life regression, is that a good idea? Um, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, <laughs> it depends. I, it's very hard to say. It depends. You know, it touches people in very different ways. Some people have uh, some memories when they do this that seem to be very reliable. Some people, uh, there are people who have done this and then they have checked, tried to kind of check if the memories actually relate to an existing personality that existed before. And some people, it has actually checked out very well and it looks like uh, they actually did uh, remember a previous personality who lived at some other time uh, but very often it is unreliable and the reason why it is unreliable is because the mind is incredibly creative thing uh, the mind will concoct the mind will make things up uh, uh, of all kinds of things and so you don't really know whether it is reliable or not uh, yeah it is very uncertain uh, so if you are interested and you think it's something that might be exciting, you know, you can do it. It can't really hurt, I suppose. Uh, it, you know, it's not, not, not necessarily a bad thing, but the chances that it, you will really have a success, I think, are quite low. Uh, yeah, it is not, uh, I don't know what the, the percentage is, but I don't think it's very great, to be honest with you. Uh, so uh, again, w whatever, I don't really know the, the answer. To meditate, to experience rebirth, Yes, that is nice idea, but again, the chances of doing that is probably even less than past life regression. Uh, <laughs> we had to be honest, yeah. I, it is. It takes very, very deep meditation to be able to experience your past lives, uh, so it's uh, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh. Okay, number two. If there is no beginning, how about the Darwin's theory of human evolution? Well, it, it, these things are not necessarily incompatible. Yeah, this is what is so interesting about this. So these things are um, uh, because they are two different things, really, and. Uh, uh, there is two different kinds of evolution going on here. One is the mental evolution of individual minds, uh, and you get reborn according to your kamma. That is mental evolution. On the other hand, there is like physical evolution, genetic evolution happening through the genetic material and mutations and all of that. Uh, and they are really two different things. Uh, so what Darwin is interested in is the genetic evolution. There's a certain way that things kind of start from the beginning here. Uh, but what the Buddha is talking about more in terms of the mind is kind of mental evolution. And these things can happen in parallel or, or at cross purposes almost, yeah? 
So where you get reborn will depend on what kind of bodies are available in the world. Yeah. So you will get your mind will go to whatever body is available. So if there is no human body available, you might get reborn as a monkey. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, maybe that's okay. I, I wouldn't recommend it, actually. I don't think it's a good idea. Don't try to avoid the monkeys, uh, the monkey realm. Uh, <laughs> and if you desire to be reborn as a monkey, a very good chance you will be. So try to avoid that, that kind of desire. So, uh, but the, the human realm itself is quite interesting because according to the suttas, the human realm is not stable. Uh, yeah, the human realm oscillates, if you like. Yeah. And according to the suttas, the human realm can kind of move up to very long lifespans. Uh, some suttas say up to 10,000 or even 80,000 years. Uh, and uh, is this correct or is it just mythology? And I am not 100% sure whether it's just myth or whether it's real, but it could be real. Uh, but uh, if it is real, then of course the kind of body you have would be very different from our bodies. Uh, these bodies cannot last for 80,000 years. Uh, will be look pretty terrible after 80,000 years. Uh. <laughs> So uh, you, uh, instead, it is likely that the human realm then would be something like intermediate between a deva realm and what is now a human realm. Yeah. So in that sense, the humans may not really be visible on the earth. They may exist in some kind of slightly higher realm, a kind of semi-deva realm or whatever. Yeah? So this is what complicates matters. Yeah. We don't really know. Or maybe you get born on a different planet. Uh, yeah. Different galaxy, far, far away. Uh. <laughs> How does the Star, War Star Wars go again? Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, or or a different solar system or something. That's also possible. Or maybe because if there is no human realm, maybe you go to a deva realm. There's all kind of possibilities there. It doesn't mean that there is no possibility of rebirth apart from monkeys. Yeah, that that possibility is always going to be there somewhere or other. So uh, these things are not contradictory. They actually they actually work together. And I I certainly I believe in evolution. I don't have any problem with evolution. In fact, I think that um, uh, you know, I, I, as a Buddhist, one of the purposes of Buddhism is to be uh, you are you're looking for truth. Yeah, that's the whole point. You're looking to seeing things according to reality. And science is one way of looking for truth. It should be compatible scientific truth and Buddhist truth should really work together. And if they don't work together, well, then you have to find out some solution why it doesn't work together. Uh, so that co compatibility is important. Uh, and we shouldn't, as, as uh, Buddhists, I think we should avoid the, the, the uh, problem which sometimes happens with other religions where you reject science. Uh, if you reject scientific truth, then I think you have a, there's a serious problem there. You have to somehow try to make these things work together. Uh. Okay. Um, okay, let's go from uh, uh, for this one first of all. Okay, dear Venerable Ajahn, Ajahn's Dhamma talks and Q&A sessions are really great and exemplary. Ajahn's explanations were so powerful that some things hit hard on me. Okay, Ajahn, if I am unable to attain a higher spiritual level by the end of my life, is it okay to keep my mind in the Deva realm? Where, as Ajahn said, I have a chance of hearing and practicing Dhamma to be a stream enterer. Thank you. With my humble gratitude to Ajahn Ramali and Ajahn Isaruno as well. It says here. <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, is it okay? Sure. 
Sure, it's okay. Don't I? You know, sometimes you hear in Buddhist circles that oh, I I must be reborn as a human being again in the future. But uh, the Buddha never says that. He doesn't say that you must be re reborn as a human being. Uh, in fact, I would say that don't try to control these things. Just go with the flow. Allow karma to take its course and see what happens. Uh, and being reborn as a deva is not too bad. Yeah, at the very least, you get a bit of a holiday or something. Uh, you enjoy yourself a little bit, uh, and that can't really hurt. Uh, and uh, and quite likely, I mean, Buddhism is disappearing quite fast in the world. We don't know how long it's going to last. Uh, uh, quite likely, it will remain in the Devaloka long beyond uh, how long it remains in the human realm. Uh, and if there are areas in the world, if there are noble ones around, uh, where are they most likely to be found? Probably in the Devaloka. Yeah, areas will usually have a high rebirth. Uh, so if you want to meet some stream enterers and once returners and non returners, uh, you won't probably find, I don't think you will find Arahants there, or will you? Not sure I, about that, but um, unless they, you know, a Devas can become Arahants, uh, maybe can they? Not sure. And I, I don't know about that. This is uh, beyond my, this is one of, the f one of the things I cannot answer for you. But uh, certainly there will be many Aryas there, yeah? Can't be, can't be all bad, Devaloka, if you get uh, you know, a lot of less war, less climate c change problems, yeah, all these kind of things. Uh, generally a better kind of existence uh, and then you get to meet the areas at the same time uh, it's a pretty good deal so take that deal that's what i recommend uh, so uh, actually just go with the flow when you die don't try to control too much and see what happens that's probably the best way i would say okay we have now come to the last question for tonight uh, dear ajan is there perception for things other than the visual uh, noise for example or sound indeed uh, yeah perception relates to all of the senses the all the six senses uh, so uh, for example when you hear a sound uh, then there is just the raw sound that is a kind of perception already just the sound uh, but then there's the interpretation of that sound uh, yeah wh what is speech well speech is interpretation of sound uh, and that of course is perception yeah you and the speech might be nice, it might be bad, it might be meaningful or not, and all of these kind of things. All of that is perception. Uh, same thing with food. You taste something or you smell something. Uh, yeah, it smells good, it smells bad. That's perception. You relate that smell or that taste to to the what it is. Yeah, perception again. Uh, touching things, perception. Uh, uh, mental things, just the mind without any senses at all, also is perception. You perceive the bliss of the mind, you perceive nimittas, you perceive all of these uh, wonderful things in the mind, uh, that's also perception. Uh, so perception is very, very broad. Uh, it's one of the broadest categories in there. Uh, so it, uh, all of this is part of that. And all of the mental fabrications that we do, that we add to that, uh, that's also an aspect of perception. Uh, so very broad. I, did you hear this one, Ajani Sarana? Uh, did you hear your name mentioned before? Uh, you didn't hear your name mentioned? Okay. It says here that with humble gratitude to Ajahn Brahmal and Ajahn Nisarunoha. So just to, to let you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice, nice for you to know. <laughs> so that's it for tonight. Uh, that's all the questions. Uh, so uh, for those of you who are leaving today, uh, have a safe trip back. Uh, and uh, uh, maybe we will see you again at some other time. Maybe not. Who knows? Uncertain uh, the way things are going. But uh, anyway, I wish you all the best. Uh, and the rest of you will see you back again tomorrow morning here. Yeah. So let's just end the day by doing the homage to the Triple Gem here. Yeah.